Revelation 7, 9-17 After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders, and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing, and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honor, and power, and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these, clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. The Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The Word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, I wonder if you would uh, please keep the uh, reading there from the book of Revelation in front of you on page uh, 12. And here's a question that really kind of comes up for me every year uh, at Christmas. So during Christmas, we end up talking a lot about hope. Uh, we talk about things, you, you could you could hear it in the uh, bidding prayer, the traditional bit right at the beginning where we were saying, talking about all the things that that we can pray for this time of year. Um, and really, without using the word hope, it's it's all about hope. We pray for the alleviation of uh, suffering. We pray for the cessation of war. We pray for all of these sorts of things. Uh, Christmas brings up the question of hope a great deal. And, and the question that it sparks for me is, um, does, does Christmas really give hope that really fortifies real hope, or, or is all this stuff that we do at Christmas really, after all, merely palliative? Do you know why I use the word palliative? Uh, I don't know anything about medicine, but I'm pretty sure that uh, a palliative uh, care is, is a medical treatment that aims to relieve uh, discomfort, uh, but is not aimed at, at curing the illness. It's a very good thing when that's what one needs. But my question is, is Christmas really simply that? Does it give us a kind of temporary relief from the distress of our world, but not really address it? Or, or maybe the story is better than that. Maybe Christmas actually gives us a hope that speaks into the darkness of our world and that speaks a word that can truly fortify us in the midst of the darkness. Does that make sense? That's the question. Keep that in your mind and please look at Revelation chapter 7. Um, so this uh, is the last book of the Bible, and it's not a traditional Christmas reading, but nevertheless, it gives us uh, a vision that really kind of sums up the highest aspirations and the deepest desires that we talk about this time of year. It, it describes a vision of world peace, and it describes a vision of uh, comfort 
after grief, and it describes a vision where hunger is ended, thirst is ended. Take a look at it. Uh, this is written by uh, the uh, Apostle John, one of the disciples of Jesus, and it's a vision of heaven. You can kind of see this uh, vision as a little bit like a, like a video clip, a little, a little trailer about uh, one way of looking at the end of history, this beautiful vision of the end of history. And, and what John sees, first of all, is a this crowd, this, this remarkable crowd of millions of people, people, uh, the crowd going out into the horizon, millions of people. And they're all gathered around God and they're all gathered around the Lamb. And this reading, the Lamb, is a title for Jesus. And the thing that's remarkable about this vision is that every nation is represented. No ethnicity is left out. You, if you were there, you could look out and you could see Malawians over there, and you could see Paraguayans somewhere over here, and you could see uh, people from Ukraine, and you could see people from Russia, and you could see people from Mexico, and people from India, and you could see Palestinians and Israelis, and you could see... People from New York City, the loud ones. <laughs> Everyone's there, except there's one thing that's loudly missing, and the thing that's loudly missing is war. There's no conflict. And these are people who previously had been enemies, and yet here they are in proximity with, with each other, and yet there's joy and there's no war. There's perfect reconciliation around the throne of God. And it's not a kind of merely rosy picture. It's not that these people haven't suffered. Um, actually, these are people who have uh, gone through hardship and conflict and war. Take a look at verse uh, 14. You see the word tribulation? These are people who have come through the tribulation. What does that mean? The word tribulation means um, suffering and distress and affliction. But here it's more specific. Uh, Revelation was written to a group of people who were experiencing just a, a crushing test of loyalty. I say that because on the one hand, they were part of the Roman Empire, and uh, therefore their uh, emperor was Caesar, a guy called Domitian. But on the other hand, Revelation was written to people who lived in the Roman Empire, but nevertheless were Christians, which meant that they had given their fundamental loyalty to Jesus Christ as their king, that Jesus's kingdom was held their deepest allegiance. And these two loyalties of being part of the Roman Empire on the one end, but being part of Jesus's kingdom on the other hand, they were coming into conflict and they were running into each other. And the people who received the book of Revelation were people who were crushed in the middle. And in the middle of being crushed, these people in this reading who come out of the tribulation are people who had preferred Christ over Caesar and every other loyalty in their lives. And verse 14 says that they had washed their robes in the blood of the lamb rather than the might of Caesar. And they paid a terrible price for it. Verse 14, they had come through a terrible tribulation. They had suffered ferociously and many of them had died violently. However, look at the last line. This is one of the most tender images of God you'll find anywhere in the Bible. It says that God will wipe 
every tear from their eyes. Just imagine the scene. God is here and he's healing their suffering. And it's not just that God is putting a stop to suffering in general, just that from now on there's going to be no more suffering. That's true, but that's not the point here. The point is that God is going to each individual and he's wiping the tears from each individual's eyes. And he's wiping not only the tears from each individual, but each individual's experience of pain. Each individual tear, each individual memory, each wound, each experience of abuse is being wiped away so that God is touching every sorrow and so that no tear remains unaddressed. So that no war remains where previously it had been, but also no suffering goes unaddressed. But then finally, um, every need is satisfied. Look at verse 16. Some of these people in the midst of their walk of tribulation and experienced hunger and homelessness and poverty, but now that stops. And the reason that stops, according to verse 17, is that the lamb, which is a name for Jesus, the lamb has become their shepherd. And therefore, Jesus personally guarantees that they're never going to be hungry again. And they're never going to be thirsty again. And they're never going to be homeless again. And so you have this image that's beautiful of no conflict and no more suffering and no more need. And all is addressed and satisfied. And I wonder, does that sound good? But do you see why it brings up the question, is it real? Is this merely palliative so that we can sit here in church on this particular day or maybe in this season of the year and think about these things and have a momentary reprieve from the realities of the world? Is it just that? Or does this have a word of hope to those who have experienced just the very worst that this world has to give. And maybe you're here today and you've experienced the very worst that this world has to give. And maybe you find this time of the year just the worst time of the year because you're supposed to be happy, but nevertheless, you're walking through the midst of great pain. Is it palliative or is there real hope? And the answer to that question depends entirely on what it is that happened in Bethlehem. The answer to that question is entirely wrapped up with what is it that happened at Christmas? Why do I say that? Well, think about Christmas. Um, Christmas is a story about how God voluntarily becomes human. Christmas is the story about this baby born in Bethlehem, Jesus, who is at the same time fully human and also fully God. And of the many things that that means, it means this. It means that at Christmas, God voluntarily sets aside his divine immunity to suffering. And God voluntarily embraces a path that leads him through grief and through affliction, and through suffering, and through tribulation, and out the other sin. Just think about this for a minute. Think about Jesus' experience of childhood. So uh, did you know that Jesus, as a child, uh, was the target of state-sponsored violence? 
So what happened was uh, Herod, who was uh, kind of Rome's puppet in the area, uh, Herod heard a rumor that there was a child in, born in Bethlehem that might one day challenge his authority. And, and Herod didn't like that very much. And so what he did is he went out and he killed uh, everybody in Bethlehem's maternity ward. Just indiscriminate killing, hoping to kill his target. And it was because of that that Jesus and his family became political refugees and they fled from Bethlehem down into Egypt. Right through Gaza. And Jesus grew up in his formative age experiencing what it is to be crushed and to find yourself in the midst of the pressure when this world rebels against God and all that God stands for, and he found himself in the middle of it as a small child. And I can hear someone say, yeah, okay, fine. But if it's true that Jesus was God, then sure, maybe things didn't go great. But at any moment, if he's God, then he could have snapped his fingers and escaped it all. To which I respond, that may well be true. But what's remarkable is that he chose not to. What's remarkable is that Jesus felt every sorrow and Jesus shed every tear. As you watch Jesus grow up, we have these records of Jesus weeping, God himself in person weeping. We have records of Jesus being at a funeral, a funeral of his friend Lazarus, and there he cries at the tragedy of death. If you're grieving today, Jesus knows what that's like. We have records of Jesus looking at the beautiful city of Jerusalem, The city that's meant to be the city that stands for peace. And he looked at Jerusalem and he saw its corruptions and he saw how far below its vision it falls. And in the midst of all of that, Jesus wept. He wept tears when he saw the corruption of his nation. And not only did Jesus experience grief, but he experienced deprivation. He said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man, talking about himself, has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus experienced homelessness. And sometimes he was hungry and sometimes he was thirsty and there were times where his family rejected him. And if that's what you've experienced, Jesus knows all about it. And later on, his friends who tended to stay with him, even most of them left him in the end. Jesus experienced all of the grief that we experience and it all came to a head when the Roman authorities joined forces with the religious clergy and they finished the job that Herod failed to do. And they put him up on a cross. And I can hear someone else saying, okay, fine, he suffered, but a lot of people suffer. What's different about Jesus? And the answer is this. If God was born in Bethlehem, and if God experienced the full range of human suffering, then it means that God is worthy of your trust when he speaks a word of hope into this world. What do I mean by that? You know, um, people who have really suffered uh, are rarely sentimental about suffering. And people who have really walked through the valley of the shadow of death, they rarely have time for false hope. There's a way in which the scars of life make realists of us, isn't it? 
And that's true of human beings like us. But if God became human in Bethlehem, then it means that it's true of God as well. And it means that you can trust what it is that God says when he speaks about wiping away every tear. The only God that you can trust to wipe away your tears is a God who has already shed them himself. And that's the God you get in the little town of Bethlehem. It's more than that, because Christmas isn't just about how God became human as an act of solidarity with us. It is that, but it's more. Because God became human in Jesus, not only as an act of solidarity, but as an act of redemption and restoration and renewal. Go back to, the, go back to Revelation. And think about the, all those tribes and nations and peoples gathered around together. What is it that, what causes their reconciliation? Why are they at peace? Uh, is it because they, they finally found a, a negotiated truce? That's not it. It's not that they just buried the hatchet. The Bible's not that naive. Look again and watch who it is that they're looking at. They're not focused on a common treaty. They're focused upon God. They're singing to God and they're singing to the Lamb. They're saying salvation, restoration, renewal, redemption belongs to our God and to the Lamb. And the point is they're reconciled together to God. And because they're now reconciled to God, they look to the person and the group beside them who used to be their enemy. And now they find that they have become their sibling. And the same thing explains why they're no longer hungry and they have no more unmet needs. They're not hungry in verse 16 and they're not homeless. Why? Because they share the same home as God himself. They're in God's temple and they're in God's home meaning they're part of God's family all together. And they're so close to God that God can reach out and wipe away every tear. And if God can wipe away every tear from their eyes, and that means that they're close enough to touch the face of God, they're looking at God as their father. And the point is this, the only way we will ever experience true reconciliation of all our conflict and the true redemption of our pain and the true satisfaction of all our desires is if we are reconciled to God so that God becomes our home and we become his family. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ came to do. That was the aim of Christ's birth in Bethlehem. Friends, the Son of God was born into our pain and the distress of this world so that we could be brought in to share in his joy, the joy of being the child of God. And so, friends, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, what I want to say is that there's very good news. What I want to say is that this hope and this future can be yours. It's available. It's on offer. It's not palliative. It's not a fantasy. It's real. There is nothing palliative about Jesus's birth or his life or his death. And because Jesus has risen from the dead, you can be confident that his resurrection can be your resurrection. But it's not automatic. This doesn't have to be your future. We can reject it. But why would we want to? And is there a better hope that you can see? 
And for those of us who are Christians, who are followers of Jesus, Jesus wants to fortify our lives with this hope. What does that look like? Well, look at verse 14. And think about the early Christians. Verse 14 says, these are people who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. What does that mean? Well, it means at least this. It means that the blood of Jesus Christ has become the orienting story of their lives. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Jesus' suffering and his death and his tribulation has become the central identity of their lives. It's become the center of their story. And how that works is this. It's when Christians look at Jesus and we see that Jesus gave all that he is for us, that God became human and as a human gave all that he is for us and died and rose again. And when you see his death and his resurrection, it will call forth a desire to give all that you are back to him in love. And the early Christians gave all that they are back to Jesus in love. And they gave him their deepest allegiance. And it cost them suffering. And to some of them, it cost them suffering so great it led to the shedding of their own blood. But that kind of courage is the mark of a life fortified by hope. And it transformed their lives. And the early Christians became famous for caring for uh, those who were hungry and those who were suffering. And they became famous for people who wiped away the tears of others because they expected and they were looking forward to God wiping away their tears. And no one in the Roman Empire had ever seen an ethics like that. And the early Christians became famous for crossing tribal barriers and building multi-ethnic communities that we call churches. And these churches became closer than biological families. And, and the Roman Empire had never seen a unity and a reconciliation like that before. In other words, they began to reflect the beauty of the child that was born in Bethlehem. And Caesar couldn't stop it. He could kill him. But that didn't stop it. And that kind of courage is what it looks like to be fortified by this hope. And Emmanuel, that's where Jesus wants to take us. And to do that, we need to look forward and we need to look backwards. We need to look forward to the beautiful and certain hope that Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection procured for us. So meditate upon the hope. It's not palliative. It's certain for anyone who's in Christ. And as you look forward, also look back. Look back to the God who put his money where his mouth is and entered into the midst of the pain of this world and listened to that God who suffered and who wept every tear that you will ever cry. Listen to that God speak a word of hope into the midst of your pain today. And as you do that, you will find yourself fortified with the courage to go out and reflect him in the midst of a world that's desperate to see a hope that is real.